having a boy myself, I found this uh, really good. Dale Evans Rogers wrote this. Some of you know that um, Dale and Roy, uh, when they were alive, adopted a number of children and really had a love for kids. And they were my neighbors, actually, a couple miles away. So I take great interest in what she writes. She says, Between the innocence of babyhood and the dignity of manhood, we find a delightful creature called a boy. Boys come in assorted sizes, weights, and colors. But all boys have the same creed. To enjoy every second of every minute of every hour of every day, and to protest with noise, their only weapon, when their last minute is finished and the adult males pack them off to bed at night. Boys are found everywhere, on top of, underneath, inside of, climbing on, swinging from, running around, or jumping to. Mothers love them, little girls hate them, older sisters and brothers tolerate them, adults ignore them, and heaven protects them. A boy is a composite. He has the appetite of a horse the digestion of a sword swallower, the energy of a pocket-sized atomic bomb, the curiosity of a cat, the lungs of a dictator, the imagination of a Paul Bunyan, the shyness of a violet, the audacity of a steel trap, the enthusiasm of a firecracker, and when he makes something, he has five fingers on each hand. Nobody else gets so much out of trees, dogs, and breezes. Nobody else can cram into one pocket a rusty knife, a half-eaten apple, three feet of string, two gumdrops, six cents, a slingshot, a chunk of unknown substance, (laughs) and a genuine supersonic code ring with a secret compartment. A boy is a magical creature. You can lock him out of your workshop, but you can't lock him out of your heart. You can get him out of your study, but you can't get him out of your mind. You might as well give up. He is your captor, your jailer, your boss, your master. A freckle-faced, pint-sized, cat-chasing bundle of noise. But when your dreams tumble down and the world is a mess, he can put together the broken pieces in just a twinkling with a few magic words, I love you. I love that because I have a boy, but the last part of that could also be said, in fact, probably isn't any truer of anyone than Jesus Christ, the boy from Nazareth who grew up to become our Savior. That last part fits him well, don't you think? When your dreams tumble down, your world is a mess, he can put together the broken pieces in just a twinkling with a few magic words, I love you. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, He spent his early childhood there, as we'll discover tonight, before he fled to Egypt for a number of years because a king named Herod sought his life. And then he moved back and lived and grew up in a place called Nazareth. Thirty years of his life, some call the silent years, the obscure years, the years that are shrouded in darkness. And it's interesting, as we mentioned in our video, that There's lots of speculation. All sorts of stories and myths have emerged as to what Jesus did for those 30 years, where he was living, that he healed baby birds with broken wings, that as a child he placed his swaddling cloths 
on a demon-possessed boy and healed him, uh, that he'd walk by idols and they would disintegrate in his presence, and that he spent a lot of time in Egypt growing up learning occultic practices in order to impress people so that when he got back home, he could convince them that he was the Messiah. All of that's fable, as you know. But these years, though not a lot is written about him, some is, and there are five, I found, cameo appearances of Jesus from his birth to his presentation at 30 years of age to the nation of Israel. Three of which we're going to cover tonight. Two take place in Jerusalem. One of them takes place in Bethlehem. I've had you turn to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 21 tonight. The three things we want to look at at his upbringing this evening are his circumcision, his dedication, all that took place in the temple in Jerusalem, which is only five miles from Bethlehem, an easy walk, and then finally his visitation by those three famous visitors we sang about tonight. Verse 21, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child... His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Circumcision, you might say, was the heritage of Jewish males. It was the cutting of the foreskin of the flesh to symbolize a covenant God made with Abraham. In a sense, God was saying, you are marked out. My mark is on you. You are my child You are in my covenant. It was a mark of promise, but it speaks of Jesus' purpose, in a sense. I found it interesting that Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, Circumcision was Jesus' first suffering for us. You might say, in his case, it was predictive of the cross, the ultimate suffering he would face. Circumcision took place on the eighth day. On the eighth day of a boy's life, he was brought into the temple or a synagogue as it is done today. And it was the cutting away of the flesh that spoke of the cutting away of the sin nature. Which is what the cross was all about, wasn't it? It was the cross that ultimately was God's method of dealing with our sin. Also, I think that his circumcision speaks of his MO, his modus operandi, the way he operated in life. He made a statement in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I haven't come to destroy. I have come to fulfill. So we have a Jewish boy raised in a Jewish home going through the Jewish rituals according to the laws of Moses. Not the traditions of the Pharisees or the scribes, but the laws of God. Keeping the law, born as Galatians writes, as Paul writes in Galatians, born under the law, born of a woman. I would, uh, before we move on, make a note here and say, likewise, in your life, the first step for you and I to live a life with purpose, to live a life with purpose, is to make sure that God has His mark on you, His imprint in your heart, that God has you in His grip, God has his mark on your life. Notice also his name. His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
On the eighth day of circumcision, that was the day that the boys in Israel got their names. Jesus already had a name, didn't he, before he was even born. It was what the angel told Joseph. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph got the name. Mary also got the name from an angel. So in a sense for them it was easy. They didn't have to sit around and get the book, A Thousand and One Names for Your Baby, and say, how does that sound? Oh, I like that one. The angel said, this is his name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the name of Jesus is the purpose for his birth and his life and his death. I read a article some time ago, an Associated Press article, of a couple in England who gave their daughter 139 names. That's a lot of options when you grow up, I suppose. They call her Tracy, but her official name is Tracy, Lisa, Tammy, Joy, Samantha, Christine. I'll stop there. I'm not going to go 139. You get the idea. The father was asked, why are you doing this? And he said, because I want to leave my child something when she grows up. Now, I don't know what that means. And certainly he's not thinking of a meaningful name for his child with 139 of them. It was just some unusual, novel thing to do. Whereas with Jesus, the name is very meaningful. It's the name Joshua or Yeshua, Yahoshua. The name means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh, God, is salvation. You will call this baby Jesus. That is his purpose. He will save his people from their sins. God is salvation. So that's his purpose, really, right from the start at his circumcision and his name. It tells us why he came, which we ought to remember every Christmas. Why did Jesus come? He didn't come to give merchants a way to get a few more profits by painting manger scenes on their glass windows. He didn't come to give kids a two weeks off of school or people a few days off of work. He didn't come to become a good moral teacher and a fine example for humanity. This baby's purpose was to save people from their sins. Did you hear that? Not from their insecurities. Not from their hang-ups. You know that God didn't forgive hang-ups. He forgives sins. And the sooner we come to grips and call it sin, the sooner we'll get forgiveness for it. He didn't come to save us from our inner child or our karma. He came to save people from their sins. His purpose was marked out in His name. I thought about this a lot. I do every Christmas, and I bring it up that Jesus Christ was the only one born with the specific purpose of death. Now think about that for a minute. You who have children, what are your plans for your kids? Anything but death. You have plans of life, of where they're going to go to school, what they'll be when they grow up, who they'll marry, where they'll move, or what they'll do. But God's plan, the Father's plan, was to send His Son to save people from their sins, which included his death. I found this little short poem. A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled 
but held within their dimpled grasp the hope of all the world. You might say, Mary had a little lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Now look at the next few verses. We come to his dedication. It's some time later. They go back to Bethlehem after he's circumcised and named. It says, Now when the days of purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now we have a combination of things going on here. Number one, there is a purification. And number two, there is a redemption of the firstborn. And I've lumped them together and called it a dedication. This is how it worked. A woman was considered unclean if she birthed a boy for 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, she'd march to Jerusalem and she'd bring a lamb as an offering of purification. But lambs were expensive, and so there was a stipulation in the law that if you were poor, you could bring a couple pigeons or turtle doves. And guess what? They were poor. They brought the lamb of God, but they brought these turtle doves or pigeons as their sacrifice. But then there was, mentioned in the same verse, the redemption of the firstborn. And I want you to understand this. The firstborn child was brought to the temple for dedication. You had to pay God five shekels to buy him back. You're dedicating him to God. God, this is your child. He will live a life for your purpose. Use him. And then you would give the temple five shekels. And you would bring him back into your home. His life is dedicated to God, but I'm going to raise him in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That is never truer than of Jesus Christ, who lived his whole life in dedication of the Lord. Who said later on, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish the work. Who, when he was 12 years old, said to his mother, Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? So this is the dedication. Now, in verse 25, we have, it's the same scene, but a human interest story is given. There's two people that that walk up to this couple during this purification, during this redemption, and they have something to say. And we read about them. The first is Simeon, the second is Anna. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, that is the Messiah, to come. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. You can imagine that, can't you? This is their firstborn. And then this guy breaks into a hymn of praise. Joseph and his mother marveled. Verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is usually pictured in art as a very old man. Tradition assigns him the age of 113. Now here's the scoop. We don't know that. It doesn't say how old he is. People infer that because the Lord told him that he won't die until he sees the Messiah. But he could be in his 20s. Didn't say that he was old. In fact, what's interesting about this guy is we don't have a description at all of his physical outward appearance. But we do have a great description of his inward appearance, don't we? He was devout, he was just, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And notice that the Holy Spirit is mentioned about him three times. Notice, if I can find the verse, it's eyesight, you know. Yes, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem, blah, 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 waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit. Now this sort of jumped out at me when I studied this. And this is how I'd like to apply it to us. How are you regarded if somebody's to describe you, what what things about you would come to their mind? An outward appearance? Probably that would that'd be part of it. Blonde, tall, thin, short, hunched, fit, not fit. Or would they say things like, Oh, devout, in love with God, filled with the Spirit, loving the things of God? Your unsaved friends might say, very religious, and that bothers me. (laughs) But would it be an outward or an inward attribute that would be most noticeable about you toward other people? I love this description. It shows what the Bible says in the Old Testament, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God is the one who looks at the heart. And this guy's heart is filled with the Spirit. Well... It seems like this guy would go to the temple every day and just sort of walk around. This was his job. He'd just sort of walk around and look and and look at babies coming in and think, well, is that the Messiah? I guess not. Maybe this is. Okay, I'll call it a day. Come back the next day. Okay, where's uh, the uh, Messiah? Then one day, this poor couple comes in. And he walks over to them, maybe with one of those prophetic grins, and says, excuse me, uh, can I hold your baby for just a moment? Uh... Okay, sure. Give him back. Here. And then this guy breaks into this wonderful song that tells of the purpose of this boy. Just like his name spoke of the purpose, the circumcision spoke of the purpose, this song of Simeon speaks of Jesus' purpose. You see, the Lord told him, and you'll notice in verse 30, 
Simeon said that he had seen salvation, right? My eyes have seen your salvation. Mark that word. What did he really see? He saw a baby. Okay, now think about this. Lord, I can depart in peace. I've seen your salvation. I'm holding your salvation. Your salvation is a baby. Salvation is a purpose. Excuse me. Salvation is a person. Salvation is a person. That's why evangelical Christians preach the need of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in a person, not a process, not a mantra, not a set of rules and regulations. Jesus didn't say, follow my teachings. Here's my code of ethics. My teachings are the way, the truth, and the life. He said, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there's Simeon. I can die a happy man, Lord. I've seen your salvation. I'm holding him. He is a purpose. Also notice that he is called the light. Verse 32. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus Christ is God's flashlight so that men and women can get out of their darkness. Now let's say you and I were to have been back there 2,000 years ago and we were to walk over to Herod's palace and say, Hey, are you guys in darkness? Do you need a way out? They would have scoffed and said, Are you kidding? Darkness? Why, Rome has brought light to the world. Look at our laws. Look at the Pax Romana, which gives freedom for travel all over the world. We're not in darkness. It was Rome who brought you light. And let's say you were to go over to the Jews in Jerusalem and say, hey, are you guys in darkness? You need a way out of it? They would have said, are you kidding? We have the great teachings of the Pharisees and the scribes, these great tutors and teachers of the law. They have enlightened us through the years. If you could make it over to Athens, Greece and say, hey, you guys in darkness, you need a way out? They would have said, are you kidding? We have the great philosophies of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. We brought light to the world. But Simeon, by his very words, implied the world is in darkness and Jesus Christ is God's light. Why? Here's why, and here's the purpose again of Jesus. The world is infected with a virus. All of us are. We're born SIN positive. Every man and every woman. It is a fatal disease that takes eternal life from everyone. And that's why 2,000 years ago this baby was born. Because Isaiah predicted... All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. Same theme, back to salvation. The angel said, you'll call him Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Simeon said, I've seen your salvation, it's this little baby, a light to get people out of darkness. Of course, that's the message, that's the truth, but not everyone will agree with it. 
psychologist or psychiatrist might say, the problem isn't sin, that's old-fashioned. The problem is simply a behavioral disorder, and we can fix that. We can fix your guilt complex. Uh, A sociologist might say, well, it's just a cultural lag. A minority group might say, well, the real problem in the world is racism. Socialists might say it's class struggle. The Bible calls it sin, the sin nature, and the only solution for the sin nature is the new birth. Isn't that what Jesus said to Mr. Religion, Nicodemus? Unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. That's the reason God stepped out of heaven, out of eternity onto the earth 2,000 years ago, to deal with the sin problem. That's the purpose. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause. Christ the cure. That's His purpose. Before we move on, you'll notice there is a a personal note to Mary. Let's not skip over that. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign, literally a miracle, which will be spoken against. Let me give you my translation on that. This boy will be the most loved and the most hated individual ever born. Things haven't changed, have it? He's the most loved and most hated. Some people hear the name Jesus, will go, oh yeah, love Jesus. But go into an elevator Monday and say, Jesus Christ, in a nice way, not a gruff way, because other people might think you're swearing. Or say, have you heard about Jesus Christ? Do you know that Jesus loves you? I was speaking to a friend of mine a couple weeks ago out in California, and he said, I was at this place, and these guys were just kind of being ornery, and I just said, hey, guys, Jesus loves you. And he said, they went from slightly agitated to absolutely irate. Irate! Now, Buddha doesn't incur that kind of reaction, nor does Muhammad, nor does Krishna, but Jesus does. And actually, it's the height of bigotry, is it not, to hate somebody you've never met? I hate Jesus. We've never met him. Invite him in here. I will not. Bigot. (laughs) Find out what he's like before you hate him so much. But he will be a miracle. God's sign which will be spoken against. And then, here we have the first hint of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In other words, Mary, there's coming a day when you're going to see your son die on a cross. You'll be there. And you're going to get ripped up inside as any mother seeing her baby dying like that will pierce your own soul. So this is Jesus' life so far, a life with purpose. And let me sum it up so far by saying if you want your life to be filled with purpose. Number one, make sure your life is marked by God, dedicated to God, and if your life is marked by God and your life is dedicated to God, you'll find that you have the enemies of God against you, like Jesus. Uh, There's somebody else we want you to meet, verse 36. She's really cool. 
Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years old who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, notice it, there was no lag time, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him, Jesus, that baby, that infant, 40 days old, to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. The New Testament scholar William Barclay informs us that there was a group of people living in Israel at the time called the Quiet of the Land. And the Quiet of the Land were a group of Jews who, they weren't interested in politics as much. They weren't interested in overthrowing the Roman government like the Zealots. They weren't interested in pushing their agenda and getting rid of the Romans. They would piously and quietly wait for God to fulfill His promise through the Messiah. The Quiet of the Land. And he tells us that probably Simeon and this 84-year-old woman, Anna, were members of this group, the quiet of the land, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What I want you to notice about this old gal is she's 84, but she has not stopped hoping. She is still waiting. She's still hoping. She hasn't given up hope. And I find that encouraging because often with old age comes a jaded Outlook, a bitterness that can come with age, but not this gal. I love what James Garfield wrote. He said, If wrinkles must be upon our brows, let them not be upon the heart. The spirit should never grow old. Young at heart, she becomes one of the first evangelists. She's in the temple. It's probably the hour of prayer. Hey, come here. I want to show you God's Messiah. Hey, you, I know you've been waiting for... God to do His thing. Here He is. So Simeon said, I've seen God's salvation. And Anna was there to go, yep, come over here. Let me point you the way. Pointing to this child. Well, if Barclay is correct, and she is among the quiet of the land, her quietness just ended, didn't it? Because the Bible tells us she's telling everybody about Him. What a model for you and I, isn't it, of evangelists? Evangelism? We think, oh, I'm not really gifted to be an evangelist. That's for Billy Graham. I don't have that gift. I'm not an extrovert. Rebecca Pippert said, being an extrovert is not essential to evangelism. Obedience and love are. So here's a boy marked by God at circumcision, given the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins, dedicated to God's purpose, and acknowledged by other people who say, yep, this is God's anointed. Now go over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, where we will end tonight. Matthew chapter 2. We've seen the circumcision, the dedication, and this is sometime later, the visitation. And it's recorded by Matthew. I'm not going to read it all because we alluded to it last week in our series. But it says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, 
and all Jerusalem with him. Go down to verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the, notice, young child. He's not a baby anymore. He's grown a bit. And when you have found him, bring him, bring back word to me also that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. I wonder how you picture exceedingly great joy in your mind. Like, wow, that's wonderful. Can you see him just jumping around a bit, hooting it up a little bit? Exceedingly great joy. It stopped. They've arrived. When they had come into the house, they saw, there it is again, the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The wise men, we call them the magi because of the Greek word, magos. People think those are magic workers. The word magistrate comes from magi. Somebody who tendered in uh, the law. In fact, they were law makers as well as stargazers. They watched the heavens. They came from the east, the Bible tells us. Now, tradition tells us there were three of them. And tradition, again, tells us that they were kings. It's because of the Christmas carol. We three kings of Orient are. We just sang the Christmas carol. That's a cool song, but we don't know there were three. There could have been 20. We think there's three, or they say there's three, because of three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But there probably was a bunch of them. Because Herod was troubled by them. I don't think three guys on donkeys would have troubled Herod much, do you? They probably had an entourage and an army. And we don't know they were kings. They're called magi, wise men. But there we have traditions and songs, and so we get our ideas. There was a teacher in Stone Mountain, Georgia, going through the Christmas story with the kids in the class, and the teacher said, Can anyone tell me what we call the wise men? And the little five-year-old said, Yes, the three maggots. (laughs) The teacher, unimpressed, said, Can anybody tell me what gifts they brought to the baby Jesus? Without batting an eyelash, the same child said, Gold, Frankensteins, and Smurfs. (laughs) That might as well be another tradition. Now, Scripture is silent about them. But we can read between the lines and figure out they were highly regarded because Herod was troubled. And all of Jerusalem, it says, was also troubled. They come from the east, probably Medo-Persia. That's what the Greek historian Herodotus tells us, that they were from the Medo-Persian Empire, a priestly caste of Medes. But listen to this. Some believe that the Magi began in Babylon. When King Nebuchadnezzar decided, I want to get the very best of all of the peoples that I conquer, and I'm going to groom them in the ways of the Babylonians, 
the gods of the Babylonians, the practices of culture and language. And they became his magistrates, his magi. And then the Medo-Persian Empire, who took over the Babylons, continued this. And many people believe it began in Nebuchadnezzar's court and that Daniel was among them. And Daniel eventually became the chief magi, which would account then for the question they pose, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? How did they know about Jews and a king unless they'd been reading Daniel's prophecies? who spoke about the Messiah, who would be born in Judah. And maybe they'd gone through a copy of the Scriptures. Many copies were left in Babylon when the Jews returned. In fact, there were pockets of Jews still in Babylon. But maybe these guys read Numbers 24, where there is a prediction that says, a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter or king will rise out of Israel. Could it be that these magi ever since Daniel said, Where is that and when is that going to be? And then this star appeared. And this was a a smart star, like a smart bomb. It can be turned and you follow it, it travels. This star moved. Now what was it? I don't know. Some think a supernova, which when the star explodes gives off an enormous light. Some have conjectured that it's Halley's Comet because there are some charts that point back to Halley's Comet being visible in the sky around this time. Others have thought an unusual alignment of the planets that they can trace back to this time. Others have thought the Shekinah glory of God that led the children of Israel as a fire by night in the wilderness. Whatever it was, we don't know. It led these magi from the east all the way to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. And these guys were absolutely surprised when they got to Jerusalem and nobody knew. Well, we followed a star. I'm sure all of you guys know what's up. No, what's up? Where's the king of the Jews? Herod called himself that, so he didn't like that idea. They went to Bethlehem and talk about purpose. They came and they worshipped this little baby. These great elite magi, these lawmakers, these kingmakers, came and worshipped a baby. Now keep in mind these were Gentiles looking for the king of the Jews. Again, it shows us his purpose. He would come as the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. He would be the Savior of the entire world. It wouldn't be a Jewish religion or a Western religion. Salvation would be offered and open to everyone. The Gentiles are coming to worship the King of the Jews. In verse 11, there's the mention of a house. So Jesus isn't in the cave anymore, not in the manger anymore. He's now a young child living in some kind of house in Bethlehem. They decided to stay there for a while. Now, again, I don't want to ruin your nativity set, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) The whole concept of a nativity set where you've got shepherds and three kings at the same time is erroneous. It was far removed. One was when he was a baby. That's the shepherds. Much later on, perhaps years, the magi came to worship the child. He was probably around two. That's why Herod said every baby two years and younger will be killed. Look at the gifts. They give him gold. Gold is the king of metals. 
and the medal of kings. It was customary never to enter a king's chamber without giving him some kind of golden gift. Here's the king of kings. They gave him frankincense. That's Frank's incense. No, it's, it's, it's a costly incense made by Frank. It's costly incense used by the priests in temple worship. The priests, when they would offer sacrifices in Jerusalem, would put this costly scented incense, frankincense, with some of the sacrifices like the meal offering. And both of these speak so well of Jesus, do they not, in His purpose? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus, our great high priest. But then there's myrrh, which is to me the most curious gift, because myrrh was an ancient embalming fluid. Remember when Jesus was taken off of the cross and placed in a tomb, they buried him with a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. So gold, frankincense, and embalming fluid? Have you ever given a gift that just sort of bombed? (laughs) You give it to the person and they go, Thank you. I don't know what it is. I don't know why you gave it to me, but it's a gift. The interesting thing about myrrh is it gives off a scent when it's crushed. It has no scent on its own, but when it is crushed, it gives off a beautiful scent. That's why it was used in burial to counteract the decay of the body, the corpse. Crushed. Hmm. Isn't that what Isaiah said? That he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So every cameo so far of Jesus' early life shows his purpose. His circumcision, God's mark is upon him. His name given, he will save his people from their sins. His dedication and her purification in the temple. Simeon was there who said, Ah, I can now die a peaceful, happy man. I've seen your salvation. He is salvation. And Anna was there to go, Yep, what he said. And all you guys come, check it out. And then his visitation. These kingmakers from the east, worshiping the king of the Jews, who would be the suffering king, who would be crushed for sin. Years ago, a doctor told of a young woman who was dying from tuberculosis. The doctor said, every day her condition grew worse. She clung to life. Toward the end of February, she was nauseous. And I was stumped. A senior medical consultant asked me if she perhaps was pregnant. To my astonishment, it was true. The chest x-ray showed the growth of the tuberculosis cavity had stopped. The reason? Her diaphragm was pushing up against her diseased lung to make room for the child she bore. And the doctor concluded by saying, the child saved her. The child saved the woman's life. This child, Jesus, can save you. This child, Jesus, can stop the disease of sin. You are SIN positive. I was born the same way. We all are. We all need a Savior. And that's the good news of the cradle. You'll call Him Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Before we pray, we've talked about a boy with purpose. Does your life have purpose? Could you say, my life is marked by God? 
God's imprint is in my heart, in my life. Could you say, my whole life is dedicated to God. I live my life for His glory. And could you say, just like Simeon and Anna noticed it, other people in my life also notice and would regard me as one dedicated to God. Father, as we close tonight in prayer, we think of Jesus, whom we are to follow. He said, follow me. He said, be my disciples. And as the disciples of Jesus Christ, we want people to be able to notice you in us, lives dedicated to you, the mark of God in and upon our life, our heart. Lord, may we be people of purpose. Lord, we hear so many sermons, so many messages here on the radio, in books, on tape, on CD, on television. Lord, we are glutted with truth. But Father, would you please never let us forget some of the things we have heard tonight that we would never be satisfied unless our life is lived with purpose as Jesus' life was. And may the purpose be to fulfill your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.